0: Already, Although they are limited. Oh, well, at least we got them. If we encounter the Borg, we're gonna need to run, shoot, or hide. So, Jordy, we'll need every bit of power you can get to those old shields. Make
1: it so. I sir.
0: Mr. Data, has set a direct course for Earth, maximum warp. Aye, Captain. Course laid in, sir. She's ready. Engage!
1: Welcome back to Who and Company, it's episode 72, I'm Brent. This month, author, podcaster, and publisher Dr. Arnold T. Blumberg joins the company. We discuss his Doctor Who origin story, different aspects of literary fandom, and just where some of the ideas originate for some of the books that come out of ATB Publishing. Then it's Arnold's pick of the month, Paramount Plus's exclusive hit, Star Trek Picard. While we focus on the recent third series, we have to warn you, there are massive spoilers for all three seasons, particularly the third one, but all three. And look, it's worth watching. You don't need to see the first two to see the third season. If you want to go out and get your Paramount Plus, personally, in my household, that's the streaming service that we watch the most, but hey, this is the time. If you've been waiting, if you've been sitting back with that seven-day trial and you've been thinking about it. This is the time to burn that up. Use that seven-day trial. Binge these ten episodes in those seven days. It's totally worth it. Then you can cancel it if you want to. <laughs> but we talk about the entire series coming up right after this. Good afternoon. I believe it is afternoon in Soul System. <laughs> I am Captain Vadik. And you are... Uh, Captain Liam Shaw.
0: That's me.
2: It's important for you to know that I
3: was having a nice morning before all of this.
1: Oh, that's lovely to hear, Liam. Given your official psychological profile with Starfleet, I'm so glad that you remained uh, functional. You have been causing us some concern, Captain. State your business. Oh. Admiral Jean Picard in the synthetic flesh.
0: This month's guest wears many hats. He's a writer, a publisher, an educator, a podcaster, a cartoonist, a pop culture expert, and on top of that, he, well, he's a doctor. Uh, Dr. Arnold T. Blumberg, welcome to Who and Company. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. We're so glad you could join us. Uh, there is so much to talk about. Um, just looking at your All the number of things that you do for (laughs) fandom and pop culture. I feel like we could do the entire podcast just on that without even touching with Doctor Who and your pick of the month. But I've cleared
2: the rest of the week, so I guess we're good, good, good. good. Listen,
0: (laughs) ladies and gentlemen, uh, our first mini series, all of fandom, (laughs) and uh, you know, let's start uh, the first eight hours now. Uh, so the first thing I want to talk about is, um, I think I think I met you first through conventions um, because of ATB Publishing, which I have contributed to. I'm gonna say roughly at minimum six titles um, sure. as part of the outside in. How did you get into publishing? Uh, well, we've never had a publisher on here before. Writers, yes, you are a writer, but you also have taken that next step, which is super important and super really interesting. Well, I
2: appreciate it. I'm glad to be the first one. Um, I got into publishing mainly because my entire life, like many of us, has always been about loving books and and comics and, and, to a certain extent, collecting them as well. And so, in other words, I also appreciate the sort of aesthetic, tactile experience of the book or the comic or the magazine And it isn't just the content. Speaking, considering how much is going on in the news lately about all the various levels of cultural debate and argument going on about, you know, the value of writers and writing, which is paramount, and the value of AI, which is garbage.
0: Um, (laughs) But that's just me. You can't Uh, see us, but we're nodding furiously.
2: I I really, I've always loved books. I've always loved reading and collecting and owning them and, and enjoying them and... I think it was one of the most horrible twists culturally, and we started referring to things as content, and I'm as guilty as anyone else of occasionally trying to move in that direction when it seemed like, well, that's what we're saying, but it isn't just content. And so I worked in publishing for many years. I became very interested in also doing graphic design and book layout and really, really enjoyed physically putting together books as well as the editorial side of it. And uh, I've done a lot of uh, the various jobs all along the chain in creating a book from scratch to getting it into the hands of readers. And so eventually I reached a point in my career where I wanted to be able to create the books that I wanted to see on the shelf. And since I'd been working with a publishing company for quite a long time, I also wanted to segue into doing it on my own. And the Doctor Who community in particular was the fan base and the group of friends and the fandom that gave me the best foundation for being able to start that off and has still to this day been like the the basis for so much of what i wound up doing and so atv publishing grew out of my desire to just make a book from scratch and know that somewhere out there there are people like yourselves who have contributed to and even if they haven't have been interested enough to want to pick up a copy and say i'm Proud to have this. I'm happy to have this sitting on the shelf alongside other books, and that's really what I like about it.
0: Lovely. I think, imagine too, as a collector uh, and someone who I'm just I'm gonna I never talked about this with you, but I'm gonna guess that you probably, as uh, a youngster, had a number of books on your shelves that covered episodes of television classic monster films oh yes yeah. people like forrest j ackerman who you know like who have these co- amazing collections and and you know for for a young kid like myself who didn't he just grew up in a kind of a, a cultural desert and you know video stores were great but like we just didn't have the good bad movies that that uh you know i have grown to love so these books that i would find you know dusty books from the 60s and 70s of these films where i've they have just fallen into legend. There's still films to this day that I have, I'm still actively seeking that I've never seen. I'm still checking off a massive list, but this seems like sort of like that feels like the impetus. I'm just, I know I'm projecting that onto you, but you just seem like the kind of guy who probably fell into that same camp.
2: No, you're absolutely right. And uh, in fact, I'm doing very much the same thing. There have been several times, my wife would tell you, there have been several times recently where I've actually said, you know, this is amazing. I can't even remember specifics right now, but there have been several times recently where I said to her, this is amazing. I've seen pictures from this movie and in, in books I got out of the library in the seventies. And now I'm finally seeing this for the first time. I've done that a few times lately. So I'm also taking off, but yeah, absolutely. I grew up in the 70s and early 80s going to the library in particular um and have since gone to great lengths to make sure i own a lot of the ones that i remember and i do now but like all these like big hard covers not quite coffee table books but you know what i'm talking about really big uh hard covers of all the classic horror movies um you know the collections that covered universal and hammer and all that and uh yeah and uh there you go And, um, oh, my God, episode guides. I mean, that was also something I had to explain to her because we come from slightly different um, uh, approaches to the way we uh, enjoy the cultural stuff and television, things like that. She often in the past never really delved much into behind-the-scenes stuff as much as I did when I was growing up. And one of the things that she wasn't as aware of also, and I was explaining, like, what the heyday of the episode guide which is such a pre-internet phenomenon, right? Because you couldn't really do that well today. I mean, you could, and I'm sure we'd find an audience who would probably be people like us, but there isn't the need for it that there was then. And so I bought all the episode guides to anything I love. The Twilight Zone book by Mark Scott Zickrey was a key, Bible, uh, so many of those. And those not only inspired the kind of things I wanted to write, but then also eventually the kind of things I wanted to publish, which is why we're a dedicated nonfiction publisher where all the titles are commentary on or discussion of pop culture, because those are the books that I grew up loving and had on the shelf. So now ATB stuff sits alongside the Twilight Zone Companion and, you know, all the the Next Gen book, for instance, and all those other things um so yeah absolutely that was a huge passion was all all those books and i'm still seeking out movies from them to this day
0: yeah how do you decide on a project or for a title is it something that you know you're like man i really i really need a book on blank or does someone pitch the idea to you or is it a combination of both
2: Well, the way it's worked out so far, and I I won't say it it was all calculated, it just kind of happened, the way it's worked out so far is that pretty much everything we've published to date since we started were things that were pitched to us. Um, But there have been periods of time where, and I I happily put out that call again to anyone listening right now, we're constantly saying periodically, we're interested in hearing from you if you think you have a book that fits in, you know, take a look at what the kind of things we do, look at what we've already done. Do you have something that feels new or fresh on something nostalgic or interesting in pop culture? And we'll put out that call from time to time and invite people to pitch through our website or email. And pretty much every book we've done so far has been a pitch. Although the the first two things that really kicked us off were books that I was discussing with friends and colleagues, in that tight-knit community of Doctor Who conventions that I was involved in, that we were all discussing these plans at the same time. It was the birth of books like Red, White & Who and the birth of Stacey Smith's series of Outside In collections, which you're a part of. And those things were sort of a collaborative um, thought process. But since then, uh, pretty much everything's been a pitch and we try to pick things based on a little bit of what would we like to add to our line? Have we not done this too much yet? You know, there's, for instance, there's the the danger of doing too much Doctor Who, for example. Like you could argue, there's never too much Doctor Who, and most of the time I would agree with you. But also, I would never want to just be like, oh, we're just that press that publishes everybody's Doctor Who title. For one thing, there are a lot of us out there, and there are a lot of wonderful books that plenty of other publishers too come up with, which are also great takes on aspects of that and I want to make sure that if we're doing more about Doctor Who we're also doing more about many other things too and keeping the range open and since I'm very much into horror we've tried to build up a little bit on that side as well and do some more things related to horror so we're, we're always keeping an eye out but so far things have kind of come to us and we're very very small scale too so <laughs> it hasn't been we haven't had much trouble finding people and
1: and uh having interesting things come up so far um as far as that wider spectrum i was fortunate enough to write a couple of pages in the one about millennium uh, stacy asked me to do that and it was a lot of fun very cool to see myself published in a book drew was in that one too um are there any future outside in volumes coming out
2: well we have a few that we've already mentioned in the past uh, the most the one that most recently came out was the first one we did that was a significantly smaller volume of a more limited thing. Because one of the things the outside-in books tend to do is there's a certain length that seems to suit the outside-in approach. And also there are very basic real world like financial and marketing issues involved too in how a book sells. And you wanna have a certain kind of size books, a certain good length TV shows that had multiple seasons, that you know, have a lot of material. You can get a good size book. We've done that. We've done some Star Treks. We've done Doctor Who, past and present. Like you said, we did two books that covered X-Files and the extended Chris Carter universes, including Millennium. most recent one that came out was a much shorter one on Twin Peaks and a few other David Lynch things here and there. I do have to say, in all honesty, it is not done as well as some of them, and certainly not because of the content, because I think it's some of the most fun stuff and best stuff we've ever done. But also, like I said, we're very small, so our range is kind of limited too, and, and our reach sometimes. And I feel like the Twin Peaks one kind of slipped through the cracks and some people don't even know. So I, I certainly want people to know that one's there because it's a fantastic one. And then after that, we have Outside Inns planned for Deep Space Nine, which is the next Star Trek one, because we've done Classic, we've done Next Gen, and so Deep Space Nine next and Babylon Five. So two space station themed ones. And, uh, and then of course the, the one that's coming up this year is we are doing a return to the well kind of idea, which I would <laughs> normally say I would avoid, but I think it's a good way of doing it because Outside In is nothing if not eclectic. So we're doing a celebration of the fact that Outside In and ATB is celebrating 10 years. And we're doing sort of a redo of our very first Outside In. We're going back to classic Doctor Who and doing all the Doctor Who stories from the classic era again, but no one in that collection will be the same person that wrote about that given story the first time in the first Outside In. Totally fresh approach except for one person by the way who may or may not be the publisher you're talking to but apart <laughs> from that um, and the idea is try to do something new and fun and, and different with it and also when we did that first outside in it hadn't quite grown into the very eclectic wide-ranging stylistic and and bizarre, collection that it became so we really want to bring a little more of the outside in energy to the new one and it's a great time plenty of anniversaries going on for it right
0: absolutely yeah i missed those first two um i I just i wasn't part of the the social circle for outside in I, i just kind of missed it um so i was really happy to be able to contribute a piece to this new one and i gotta say absolutely heartbroken that i had to turn down uh, Stacy's offer for writing for the Twin Peaks one uh, partially because I hadn't seen Twin Peaks in 30 years. I'm actually rewatching it right now. Um, and I and every episode I watched and I remember how much I loved the show when it was first on, I, I, I just get a little more heartbroken I didn't contribute. But also I was in grad school and it was just one more thing I just couldn't throw on my plate. But um, I haven't gotten a chance to, to take a look at that volume and I I certainly am looking forward to it, and I would recommend that everyone look at all of them it's just the level of humor that stacy gets as a, just a superb editor um oh it's, so yeah
2: it's wonderful yeah. yeah and and since the beginning i've always said this is really her show with these mm-hmm. books i don't really intercede all that much creatively there have been times maybe once or twice maybe some things come up where it's like oh let's do that let's do that but not really i pretty much say look th- this is your vision and it has been since the beginning, and I think the results speak for themselves, and it's why we've had 10 years of doing this series of of these books, and everybody's still always saying, when are you going to do one on this, or on this, or on that? And it's like, there's only so many hours in the day, but I'd like to, and, uh, and I don't see any reason why they can't keep going strong, so.
0: Well, that's fantastic. You have already hinted at your love of horror movies, um, so much so that you've, you know, you've both published books about it, but you also have a podcast. You've had two podcasts that I'm, that I'm aware of. Am, am I wrong that thinking that it was just the two, or have you had another one that I've missed. It's uh, entirely there, possible.
2: There were a couple others. There have been too many podcasts. <laughs> I'm a white guy with a beard. I have a podcast. <laughs> is, <laughs> is, is this a shock to anybody? Right, um, right. Well, yeah, speaking uh,
0: as the <laughs> third white uh, yeah, guy with a beard right. on this this Zoom call with multiple podcasts. <laughs> that's right. The, the two in particular, um, the ones that I'm at least familiar with is Doctor of the Dead and The Ghouls mm. in the House. Um, yes.
2: Uh, so... When I first started out um, and uh, I was doing a lot of stuff with a creative partner, we had a number of podcasts. We started with a podcast that was more general, like just all kind of sci-fi, fantasy, entertainment, whatever we wanted to talk about. And um, we also did a short run Doctor Who podcast called Who's Talking that I very briefly revived and then realized we just weren't going to be able to keep up with it. Um, But, you know, never know. But uh, Doctor of the Dead was the first one that really took off and became sort of the defining thing where I used that name uh, all across social media as well. We we came up with that name, we came up with the idea for the podcast, and it initially came up as an idea of doing a post-Walking Dead every week uh, discussion because at the time I was really, really steeped in being A public figure that spoke a lot about the zombie genre a lot of the stuff that I was doing was all about that and um, Doctor the Dead kind of took off a little bit and then we we expanded it to talk about zombies in general and cover a lot of the movies we loved Uh, my creative partner eventually moved on to some other things I continued to do Doctor the Dead with my wife and uh, Natalie and I decided at a certain point that we really wanted to make a podcast that was ours and so we like formal, formally ended Doctor the Dead and segued into Ghouls in the House, where in every episode, which we do as often as we can, and sometimes we occasionally have gaps, uh, we talk about whatever we've watched in horror, science fiction, and usually horror and science fiction films. And we've kind of settled into a little bit of a pattern where very often what we'll do on the show is sometimes we'll look at like a horror movie and look at its remake. Uh, Or sometimes we'll pick two or three movies that are like thematically connected or like I'll show her a movie from my childhood that she never saw and she'll say, you know what, this reminds me of this. And then we'll do an episode about both of those. And what I love about that is it joins our, our mutual love of all these things with our individual likes and dislikes and then we find ways to blend them. And I think it was something you were saying before we started recording, but one of the things that Natalie and I pride ourselves on is that ghouls in the house should always feel like you're just sitting down and listening to a conversation we're having and you're li- sitting with friends having a conversation. And we're so happy that a lot of people will tell us when they listen that it feels that way. And that's that's the goal.
0: Well, peek behind the curtain. I don't know if I've discussed this on, on any of the podcasts, but whenever I... Because there's a lot of podcasts out there. I mean, it's it's difficult to say... I'm going to listen to them all because, you know, every, like you said, everyone has a podcast. Uh, chances are you have a podcast even if you don't realize it.
2: I know. If you're listening right now and you don't have one, you're legally obligated to start one right. soon. They'll be contacting <laughs> yeah. you.
0: The, the podcast police will be there yeah. soon. Um, if there is a podcast about movies, you have my interest. If it's about horror movies, you have even more of my interest. But the first thing I'm going to do if I find a new podcast is I'm going to find an episode of something a movie that I love. You know, and it's usually gonna be John Carpenter's the Thing. Yep. If you've done a John Carpenter's the Thing episode, that's going to be the very first episode I, I listen to. Well I've got I have for just you listened then. to <laughs> your your episode and I gotta say, loved it. Oh and I think one of the reasons I love that film, possibly my favorite film of all time um, is that every time I watch it or I have a conversation or I hear a conversation about it, I learn something new or I get another opinion. And there were several, especially that Natalie came up with, that I was like, I've never thought of it that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Really that happens to me
2: when we're doing it. I mean, her her take on things has been eye-opening to me on a regular basis. There's so much stuff. I mean, you you know. There's so much stuff I grew up with as a horror and sci-fi kid of a certain era, and she's from like slightly different era. Mm-hmm. So it's a slightly different take. And sometimes her perception of things is so changes forever my view of things that I've thought I've known a certain way my whole life. And you're not the only one to mention. We've had some other listeners say the same too. I personally at this point at this point I feel like my only job really is to try to shut up as often as possible and let Natalie talk because <laughs> she comes up with some of the most brilliant takes on some of these things. Just a joy to hear her break down some of the stuff. And it really has it's taught me a lot too about how to look at things, including things sometimes that are uncomfortable. Like there's a lot of stuff I've revisited from my childhood that I think I cannot believe I ever watched this without realizing this or like how problematic this is or how terrible this is. And it's, you got to go through that. If you want to be an enlightened person, you got you to gotta right. be willing to look at some old stuff and go, you know, I can't keep arguing for this thing anymore. It's just not. And so a lot of our conversations have really opened my eyes to some stuff from my childhood likes and
0: dislikes. You know, there's a Doctor Who podcast. One of our one of the things we love about Doctor Who is it's a show about change, and mm. we are nothing if we don't change with it. Every once in a while, Brent and I kind of put down the television, and we, we talk about our favorite movies, and we then pair those movies with Doctor Who episodes, you know, what, mm. make, what makes a good pairing. And one of the things I came to realize when I was looking over lists of movies that I watched as a teenager, my favorite lists, because, you know, it's, it's another thing that I, I have a feeling that uh, people like me, possibly people like you, I, I like a list it helps me to organize yeah. the world the world's a very chaotic place and it helps me as an individual to list things um and i found recently lists of my favorite movies and every single one of my favorite films as a teenager is incredible has has something incredibly pro- problematic that i didn't realize then and now looking at it going one i shouldn't have watched that as a teen or kid um yeah. and, and that you know we're all different in, in what we're exposed to and when we get exposed to it, but it's nice to have conversations, and it's another reason to find podcasts that discuss those things because we can. It's important to get those out in the open and maybe look at how those problematic instances shaped who we are, or how we see movies, or how we see those movies now. Things, yeah. you know, movies I loved as a teen don't love them so much anymore. This I don't it's necessarily years since I've watched several films.
2: I don't. I don't necessarily want to go too far down. No, line. no, if no. I want to talk all. about other things. But one thing I'll tell you also that I think is very important to bring up because I see it happen all the time, especially on social media, in in a lot of the circles you and I are also involved in too, is that there's a danger in being a fan of things so much that you take it personally when someone brings up there's a problem, and there have been numerous occasions. Where I have felt, whether it's something we talked about on the podcast or just things I might be posting about or, you know, whatever, uh, where you really get pushback from people, maybe not even belligerent, not like you see sometimes, you know, on various social media, but a bit of pushback because people feel, wait, now you're attacking my thing. And the key thing to always remember is, And frankly, this is something I'm dealing with, too, as I try to reevaluate things, and Natalie has helped me to see things through different eyes sometimes, is you got to remember, the fact that you watch these things as a kid doesn't reflect on you. (laughs) It's like, these aren't yours. You, You can say, I loved this then, but now I see that this thing is terrible, and I've changed my mind, or I've grown. You know, it's okay. You don't have to say, I must defend this thing that I loved when I was 11 because it is intrinsic to my identity. It's like, well, that's a problem because none of these things are going to stand the test of time, and some of them really badly. So you have to separate yourself from these things. And I feel that sometimes those of us that are in these fan communities, you can take it too personally When someone says, well, that thing you loved from 1982 has this character in it who's deeply offensive. And their reaction will be, well, you know, that's, it's like, no, it's okay. It's all right. (laughs) You know, just acknowledge it and and grow from that. It's all right. And I'm trying to deal with that myself about a lot of things. Like, I can't believe I watched that then. But, you know.
0: Especially in 1982. There was a lot of that going around. Yeah. It was a busy year,
1: 1982. I'm I'm seeing a lot of that now, too. I I have this new thing now over the last couple of months where every Friday night, um, my wife will go to bed and I'll sit there and and find some old 80s action movie and check it out. Yep. And maybe a movie that I loved when I was a teenager. And then I watch it again and I'm like this is crap. Why did I like this? It's terrible. I, I still love it, but yes. you can't really defend it to anyone. Exactly. <laughs> and the thing is you got
2: to you got to accept the fact that's like it's okay that you could say to yourself, well look, this was a part of my childhood, so how can I ever 100% be objective about it? But I also see a change. And I do the same thing. I've revisited some old lady stuff, a couple comedies. Um Bachelor Party, you remember Bachelor Party? Uh, that I'm sure Tom Hanks doesn't want people to remember that too much. Yes, and, yeah. And, you know, revisited some of these things thought, my God, I saw these things when I was, like, 12. And it's like, there's all kind of reasons that's wrong. And yet that's the way it was then. And then, and then you got to look at it now and say, well, now I recognize the things that are wrong about it. And, you know. And the other key thing that I would point out is that... The important thing, too, is being aware of the fact that, you know, you don't slip into other problems like saying like, you know, well, back then we didn't know or back then it was different. It wasn't different. We just weren't talking about it. There wasn't an open discourse about things. It was just as wrong then as it is now. And the fact that it was made then doesn't excuse it. But, you know, it's all these things. Anyway, rant over about
1: the reevaluating the past. Well, how about we switch things over to our favorite show, Doctor Who. What was your Doctor Who origin story? How did you find out about it?
2: Well, a
1: uh, short version is that I grew up very
2: much like a Star Trek and sci-fi and Marvel comics kid, and occasionally, I'm sure more than once, we would flip by PBS and see like there was this weird sci-fi thing on Saturday nights, and I know that on at least one or two occasions, the story that got recycled over the years was my mother telling me at one point hey look that guy has curly hair like you do maybe you'd like that <laughs> which always strikes me as weird because I'm thinking that surely couldn't have been the only reason she thought I would be interested is oh look curly hair um, and, and representation
0: so, yeah representation matters, is right? important
2: right and uh, and so I didn't I didn't really get into it. And I distinctly remember two brief encounters. I remember seeing the end of Armageddon Factor with the loop, with the general hitting the button. And I remember watching all of uh, Leisure Hive thinking I was watching a British science fiction movie. Like I didn't get that that was a show. Probably the hour and a half kind of thing threw me at that. Mm. Those are the two times I remember encountering it. And then nothing. And then... And thanks to the good folks at Broadcast.org, BroadDWcast.org, some of the same people that worked on Red, White, and Who, uh, I have now definitively nailed down that it was in August of 1987 that one Saturday night, for reasons that are unknown to me, I turned on MPT and Attack of the Cybermen was on. And I kept watching. And I've admitted this to everyone that a good portion of the kept watching was probably Perry, but also (laughs) as I watched it, the things that everybody says are terrible about that story are the reason that got me into Doctor Who. It was obviously to an outsider heavily influenced by the history of something filled with references to other stuff that I didn't know what they were talking about. Just like, a fan fest of stuff back in a time where I didn't know all the terminology for that. And something about that told me there's an enormous universe behind this story and you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg, which actually I think of cryons and everything is good. Good reference with the iceberg. So <laughs> I thought, oh, that's interesting. And so I went to the TV guide and I saw that Doctor Who was on again the next day because at that point and for quite a few years at that point, maryland public television had it on saturday nights but sunday afternoons washington dc uh pbs had it on in the afternoons so i thought wow i can watch another one immediately so i put it on sunday afternoon the next day and saw a black and white thing of a completely different era with a totally different guy and it was ambassadors of death and that's when it suddenly hit me this thing has been running a long time and I need to find out. And that was it. So then it was trips to the local comic shop to buy every Target novel on the wall and start getting the magazine and everything and and fill in the gaps because I knew there were gaps. And so that's what started me off.
0: Brent, I don't know if we've ever had the discussion on here. When did you realize that Doctor Who was more than what, Doctor Who was to you? Like, uh, as far as like, you realized there was a deeper history to the show?
1: Well, when I first discovered it, I was in the fourth grade. My friend there told me, there's this really cool show you should watch on PBS. And at that time, it was coming on weeknights at six, I think. And of course, it was Tom Baker. And so, for like a good solid year or two, it was all Tom Baker. So I thought that was the whole show. And, you know, we didn't, obviously we didn't have internet back then. I didn't really get into reading or, or doing any research into the books yet. And then I saw Legopolis and I saw him regenerate. And I was like, oh my God, what's happening? And then he's Peter Davison. And I'm like, okay, I need to look into this. I go to the library. There's all the books uh, the, what's it? the key to time. Yeah, was a Peter Haining. Yeah, Uh, beautiful book. Yeah, and and different episode guides and that I just fell into it. Then Mm. that was before the Target books, also. So it was really reference books was my first at the local library. Yeah,
2: that's another thing, by the way. When I went to the comic shop, I bought I bought everything I could find. So like I got Key to Time. Uh, also, Marvel was at that point still doing their reprints of the, some of the Tom Baker stuff and running some of the worst poorly informed text articles in the back of the various comic issues that were attempting to teach you about Doctor Who that I would only find out years later were desperately inaccurate about so many things. But I was using that as my understanding for like, Oh, what are the, all the titles of John Pertwee stories? When does this happen? Uh, and it occurs to me also within a week or two of my starting to watch, they put the five doctors on because at that time with the pledge drives, uh, the Five Doctors was always their go-to for the one they'd put on during a pledge drive and they just interrupt whatever they were doing. And I I think literally within a week or two of my starting to watch, there was a pledge drive and they put the Five Doctors on. So suddenly I got this crash course in everybody like within a couple of weeks. I was like, oh, this is awesome. And mm-hmm. uh, and picking up the, the comics for the articles. I actually, I was so into Colin Baker at that point. I've since reevaluated and that error is not nearly as high for me as some, but... I was so into his stuff at that point, and that's where I was starting, that I was desperately trying to write down titles and dates and work out why there had to be more stories after Trial of the Time Lord. Like, surely this wasn't over yet, (laughs) that there was more, and they were already teasing that Sylvester McCoy was coming. Maryland actually showed, like, a little teaser of him at one point, and I was going crazy trying to figure, well, but there's more of Colin Baker first, right? (laughs) It's like, nope. Uh, that's it, and uh, so yeah, is I mean again pre internet though, like you couldn't just Google everything; you had to piece it together with books.
1: Yeah, five doctors for me was the first time that I actually got to see the first three doctors.
0: Yeah, yeah, same. Yeah, I got the um, I got the decades books, the House Stammers decades books. Uh, after watching the ninety six movie and seeing the the regeneration. And going, oh, wait a second. Because I, I, I grew up reading the Baker comics. And then when it went to Davison, I was like, I have no idea who this person is and why they're <laughs> calling him Doctor. So I stopped reading them. I've told this story a hundred times. But, you know, getting those books and allowing me to do the research and then 96 kind of cluing me in. Um, but I didn't I didn't get a chance to watch uh, a classic episode of Doctor Who until I started to get Netflix So it Hmm. wasn't until I would say my first classic episode probably wasn't until like 2011, 2012. So I was already well entrenched in the new series before Mm -hmm. I got anywhere near. And I decided, well, okay, I I moved to a town that had a public library that had, I'd say about 80% of the DVDs that were out. So clearly at that time, not the full run of Doctor Who. No one has that yet. But um, being able to piece it together to, to read the occasional, uh, target novelization in between fandom and the internet. Thanks to that, I could, I could piece it all together. So like Mm -hmm. I, I probably could have been a doctor who fan had I had a comic shop that had doctor who stuff. Uh, and I had a library that had doctor who stuff and none of that was anywhere where I was growing up. So I I'm 20 years behind because of that. I was twenty years behind. I've I've watched it all now. So. But
2: yeah, but I mean, but then again, another way of looking at it is you got to experience like the discovery in a whole different kind of era too. We all it's have, true. we all have different times we come to it, and the fun part, like we were just saying before we started about like seeing an old movie that you'd never seen before. It's you get to experience the the first time and the discovery of it all, and that that really was exciting for me too. I was I was always excited to pick up another target book i'd read them before i even saw the stories because i wanted to know what was coming up you know and uh you can't get that part back again the the initial discovery of everything so it's always exciting you know no matter how that happens
0: do you have a favorite story
2: castrovalva yeah um it's the one i wrote about in the first outside in so could it possibly be the one i write about in the in the other outside in i was talking about maybe um, but yeah, that's it. Uh, he's my favorite doctor. Uh, and, uh, I I've often said of going back years now, it's an honest favorite because he's not the first one I saw. He isn't even really the second or third one I saw, but, uh, maybe third, I don't know. but, uh, he just, he's always been my favorite right from the very beginning. And Valva I think is just one of those perfect experiences. I can put that on, and it very much, as I wrote about in the first Outside In, it's my zero room. I can get in there and spend that hour and a half in Castrovalve on it. It's awesome. And so slightly second to that would probably be Frontier in Space. Um, that would probably be my second. Sometimes it flips, but the Pertouille era in particular, an era in general as a favorite is the Pertouille
0: era. Yeah, it's definitely one that I'm rediscovering.
2: What did you think about the Whitaker era? I thought she was wonderful. I thought everybody in it was wonderful. I thought the 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 teams, and in particular the the whole extended fam during most of her run, was just a wonderful group. All the characters felt really, maybe not Ryan so much sometimes, uh, but almost all the characters were were, were awesome. Um, and the relationship between the doctor and Yaz was, frankly, I wish they just would stop uh, dancing around things like that and be a bit more uh, open about it. It was, it was like a great setup for a really good romantic story that that never quite, you know, settled on it because I imagine because people involved in that show are still too afraid to actually just do something you know about honest human feelings but anyway um but i thought she whitaker was absolutely superb she was one of those people who clearly loved everything she was doing and was a real rarity in that she had so much energy to keep it going at all times even when she wasn't in the show like her being an ambassador for it for example she was just incredible I think that she was very poorly served by a number of bad turns of events, some that were choices made by other people working on the show behind the scenes, some just by virtue of the fact that unfortunately she wound up being the doctor when COVID happened. And I feel that she never really got the chance to have the era that she could have had if things had gone better and i also think it did ultimately a disservice to finally having the first woman as the doctor to have an era that never quite clicked long enough to give her the chance to make a mark and frankly i as much as i'm looking forward to a lot of the things coming up i feel that maybe it was not the time to immediately let go of that when when her era feels like a job that's half done at best. But of the time that we had with her, it was wonderful and it had some of the most cinematic and like just absolutely amazing storytelling I can remember ever seeing in Doctor Who. There were times I was watching some of her stories where I thought, I can't believe the gift we're being given with this show. (laughs) Um, But ultimately I think that, I think that, uh, I think that some of the choices made during that era, unfortunately, hampered her ability to really make the mark that she could have made. She gave it her all, though, that's for sure. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to opportunities in the future where she'll be able to, to play the part again. Because, as we well
0: know, nobody's done. So, you know, right. she'll be back. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to... I, I, I... I know the irony of saying I'm really looking forward to a a multi-doctor story with Jodie (laughs) Whittaker, but I'm looking forward to a multi-doctor story where Jodie Whittaker is not the current doctor. Um, I'm interested in seeing what Whittaker can do under a new creative team. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in seeing what Whittaker can do with um, companions that are not her own. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's it, there's a, a totally different TARDIS, a totally different situation. I'm really excited to see that level of energy in the hands of somebody else. And I'm not saying anything against any of the creative team. I, I agree that there was a lot of things involved in the Whitaker era that, didn't, that were not optimal. But I also think that Jodie Whitaker, as an actor, will be willing, hopefully, <laughs> Willie, as long as she's not reading all the comments, uh, will be willing to come back. And I'm I'm excited to see what kind of possibilities, even any of the modern doctors coming back, oh, sure. um, is is really kind of fascinating. Just to, uh, you know, that's a beautiful thing about Doctor Who. You can always say what if, and chances are, be it novelizations, be it audios, be it actual televised series, there's a chance it could happen.
2: Yeah. I I think, I think her era is still, uh, I'm looking forward to revisiting it at a time where I can do that with, and maybe like let go of a little bit of the disappointment that it's over. Like, I, I really feel like a lot of these things, sometimes they also go too quickly. Like, I feel like they could easily have still stuck with her for quite a while longer, but there's this There's this weird phenomenon, particularly with British television, where people seem to get the role that they've been waiting for their entire life and then they're eyeing the door five seconds later. And it's like, why would you not? I mean, like in American television, sometimes people are like, I'm riding this thing into the ground until they're like dragging us out of the studio. And in England, they're like, I have waited my entire life. At the time, I've really got to go. There's a show. And it's like, I don't get that. But I, I do think at least we got a good run with her past... COVID shutting things down. I just wish I don't know. Another series or two would have been would have been so much better. But you know,
0: what ifs.
1: Well, there's always big finish, right? Yeah, right. exactly.
0: <laughs> that answers a number of our uh predictions on our other Doctor Who podcast as, well as whether or not Whitaker will be joining us in, in audio format at some point in time in the near future. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which, taken at the Flood, leads on to fortune. O it. all the voyage of their
3: life
1: is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea are we now
0: afloat, and we must take the current where it serves or lose our ventures you here. Cheers. 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 We're grateful to have ridden the tide with you. Um, Cheers. 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 I mean, that's the thing, too, about, again, Doctor Who, it can be just about anything. Yeah. Uh, and and one of the things that we appreciate about the culture around Doctor Who is they have such an appreciation for the show's own history that they're willing to bring individuals from the past back give them their own shots. RTD, I wouldn't be surprised if RTD didn't start doing spin-offs left and right. Who knows who's going to get their own show? Speaking of which, whenever we bring a guest on to Who and Company, we know that Doctor Who is not the end-all and be-all of their fandom, so we ask them to bring on a show that is not Doctor Who. Arnold, what show have you chosen as your pick of the month? Well, we,
2: uh, we were talking about it before this began and decided that the best thing to do would be to focus on Picard. Uh, and I would say in particular, Picard season three, although if you really want to deal with it as a show, naturally, yes, there are three seasons to it. But in particular, Picard season three, I say is an example of the absolute pinnacle of uh, science fiction and pop culture storytelling that manages to both satisfy every sort of fan indulgence you could possibly want and still tell a solid story with emotional stakes and do it very, very well. And basically prove that Terry Metallus should be given all the things and just (laughs) let go. Why they're not hiring this man on again immediately is beyond me, but just let him do stuff, please, because, um, but yes, so that's, that's what I brought along. And, uh, and uh, we'll be more than happy to discuss as Picard, Star Trek Picard.
0: Fantastic. Not the first Star Trek show we've discussed on, on the program. Strangely enough, we started with uh, Enterprise like f- four years ago, I think was mm-hmm. the first one we discussed on the program, mainly because Simon Fraser wanted to discuss uh, Discovery. But we really like talking about a program after it's run its course, so you can sure. talk about it. You can see the big picture. Um, and and now we got to is, here,
2: and it's been a long road getting from there to here. So. Right. <laughs> yes.
1: Oh, well, that's... All my right, I now, did that. With, uh, there's forever. my dad
2: joke
3: for
1: the
2: episode. So. Yeah, let's I not, mean,
1: let's not sing again. <laughs> <laughs> we did that a so, Regen. Yes,
0: we did. <laughs> uh, episode 46, we discussed the next gen, and I'm mm. so glad we did, because I hadn't really revisited that show in a very long time, mm. and At the time, Picard had just, season one had just come out. I think I had, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I had just written um, an essay for uh, Outside In, season one of Picard, that, if I'm not mistaken, hasn't actually been published in a book form. I think. Oh, we did.
2: We did, when Picard did season one, we did it as a downloadable freebie that you can still get on the website. We haven't gone back to do anything two and three, but that's that's out there isn't it but but yeah, it we is. did do we did do season one as sort of like a, a little add-on to makes it so and uh, and it is still available at atvpublishing.com for you to download free so yeah yeah
0: if you if you want to read uh, my take on what would happen if you could mix Picard and the great British bake off uh, yeah that's <laughs> yeah. that's a that's, a visit, that's available a that. uh, <laughs> so I want to go back before season three even before season one and ask you about Next Generation. Yep. Were you a fan of Next Gen?
2: Absolutely. Huge. And I've never really stopped watching it um, because it's one of those shows that I have seen and repeats through various different venues pretty consistently ever since it started. Um, I, there was like a period of time where at a certain point in the in the various eras of cable where I had BBC America and they had that on virtually every day, I'd just leave it on every day. And lately, I've been catching it all over again on Pluto and watching it constantly. And it's just, and, and, and I've come to the realization, not that it was all that much a shock, but because of that, I've become more and more aware of the fact that this is definitely one of my all-time favorite shows ever, is Next Generation. And as I said earlier, I grew up with Star Trek. So naturally I grew up with the whole, you know, Kirk and Company and all of that. And uh, I am endlessly grateful for growing up in an era pre-internet before all of the learned behaviors that tell you that you have to believe what fan consensus is on things for your own opinion. Because... I was largely unaware from what I can remember around 87 of the huge backlash that was going on. How dare they do Star Trek without Kirk and everybody. I saw the trailers for the new Star Trek and I just thought, oh, that looks neat. Let's see if that works. I mean, not like I was instantly in, but it's like, oh, I'll, I'll watch that. I'll see if that's interesting and if they're going to do as well. And I knew a little bit. I read Starlog. I, I got the magazines and everything. I certainly did see some of the debate where some people were like, oh, if it's not, you know, ride or die with Kirk, if it's not the original Enterprise, I don't care. But I also didn't care so much about those people's opinions. I thought, I'll watch it and I'll see. And like anyone else, I would certainly be honest about saying that the first couple seasons were often, like, a little rough going here and there, that, like, some of the production was a little weird. You go back to watch, like, some of the season one stuff, too, and it's really, like, Patrick Stewart's, like, trying to over-enunciate a little too much, and there's weird stuff in the first season. And then they settle in, and... My God, of course, I think there I think there's a consensus we can agree is actually accurate, which is by the time you hit season three and next generation, they are firing on all cylinders almost straight to the end of the series. And uh, and of course, best of both worlds and all that we can take that as read. You know, absolute. I'll tell you a little side story, by the way. I will always remember best of both worlds as one of the greatest events in television in my lifetime, pop culture and how exciting and unbelievable it was particularly because I remember that when part two finally aired and we were waiting all summer to find out what's going to happen, I had to wait longer because you remember next gen was syndicated. So depending on where you lived in the country, different times, different days, different channels. Uh, one of the local Baltimore stations had it on, I have now discovered again, at 6 o'clock in the evening was when the first episode would air. And that year, when part two was going to debut, season four was going to start, it was the night of Yom Kippur. And my family Ooh. was observant enough that we we were observant of like high holiday stuff. For Jewish listeners, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and Yom Kippur is the day of fasting. And one of the things you're supposed to do is... You don't turn lights on and off. You're not supposed to use, look, watch television. You're not supposed to use electronic stuff, right? So usually it ends around sundown is when it ends. That would put it like around 7.30, 7.45. So imagine me waiting to find out if Picard will be deassimilated. What's going to happen to Earth? What's going to happen with Wolf 359? All this insanity is coming. I know it's airing at 6 o'clock and I have to wait until like almost 8 to be able to see the thing. So I timed the video recorder. And just to satisfy myself, because I've recently felt like, well, I can't 100% guarantee I'm remembering everything right, I went on eBay in the last few weeks and bought back an old issue of TV Guide from that year that was the fall preview issue from that weekend to prove to myself that yes, It was actually on Yom Kippur that night. It was at 6 o'clock. And so I have the TV guide now to prove to myself that my memory was perfect, and I remember that night exactly. So Next Generation is a huge thing for me. I think they're endlessly revisitable, many of them. And although I would often tell people I believe Deep Space Nine is probably the single greatest writing achievement of that era, and probably the best crafted show for character and story, I still like Next Generation more. It's just more uh, inviting as a fan to me. But I, st- I love it all. But Next Gen in particular is, is uh, a feeling of home.
0: See, that's important too, right? Because part of the success of Picard is who is watching it? is this a show that you will be able to pitch to people who are not fans of the next generation were you excited when they announced it
2: well i remember when they did the thing where like they had him come out that whatever that convention was and they were like you know we got something to say and then he comes out and says you know like picard is back or whatever he did at that thing and i and naturally i was excited there's there have been things in this current era that i've liked and things i've disliked i've never gotten into discovery I know it's a, I mean, objectively, it's a quality production with a lot of great people involved. It just never hooked me. But I also think Lower Decks is one of the most genius things ever created in the history of Star Trek. It absolutely is 100% canon. If you think differently, you're wrong. But the beauty of it (laughs) is it's a Star Trek show that is 100% Star Trek and yet also capable of being so irreverent and funny about it all. And it's just a beautiful piece of work. Strange New Worlds is also awesome. I cannot wait to see those two shows collide. Today, as we're recording this, the first pictures of the the, the crossover episode have been hitting the internet. It's like, yeah, you know, so that's really exciting. So it's been hit or miss. There have been things I like, things I dislike. And when Picard was announced, I was very excited because I thought, this feels like it's my era coming back now. I grew up with the original show, and I've always loved the... Crute Kirk, Spock, McCoy, that's the core. But I've realized more and more as I've gotten older that with Next Gen further and further in the past, that has taken on its own level of nostalgia and in some ways even more so for me than the original crew. And so I was very excited and maybe mildly disappointed right out of the gate to hear that his whole idea was, but it's just gonna be me, folks. It's not gonna be a Next Generation reunion honest i promise and i thought well let's let's check our watches and see how long that lasts and uh hey it only took us getting through two seasons to get
0: to it well to that point i was lukewarm because of that but i was i knew that you know i'll probably watch it um but my wife was like i heard that patrick stewart has a new show a science fiction show is Patrick Stewart isn't that something you'd like to watch I'm like well, maybe is it something you'd like to watch and she's like yeah I'll watch anything with Patrick Stewart I didn't watch Picard until my wife suggested it and <laughs> it was one of those things where once season two was announced she was like yeah you, you want to watch that right yeah yeah that's what, that's what, you know she'd have to stop and go okay I have no idea what's happening they're making a reference to something clearly and I'm like honestly I have no idea what it is either because as much as, uh, as I like Star Trek I am not Encyclopedic in my knowledge. I, I have only watched one or two episodes of DS9. Um i like I've watched even less of Voyager. So like I, there's whole whole slews of the lore and the mythology that I'm very anemic of her. But um yeah, I I I got excited because she got excited. And when we start <laughs> talking about season season three, I'll tell you why I get even more excited. But um Brent, how about you? Were you excited when they first pitched the idea?
1: I was very excited because Picard is, is my favorite captain just above Kirk. And I did enjoy the first season. Um, it was very different, which is, like you said, that's the whole reason Patrick Stewart agreed to do it. He he didn't want a reunion show. But in the end, I read an article where he said he stood by that until the morning he watched the very last episode of the series and uh, that was the morning of the interview and he told the guy if you'd have been here half an hour earlier you'd have seen me crying in my wife's arms <laughs> <laughs> cuz it, it, it he changed his mind and said you know that was the right call to have everybody get back together for the for the finale there but uh, yeah like that first season it was very different but it was good um obviously the third season was the best i think um The second one, we'll get to that.
0: (laughs) We Um, don't have
1: to. That's the other thing,
0: too. I mean, we we certainly don't have to go season by season in this. I mean, we could do good, bad, and ugly with this, right? Like, you know, Arnold, is there something that you feel like Picard as a series, three episodes or three seasons, not just season three, got right? Like, is there something overall that the program got right? I'll tell you, honest, honestly,
2: looking back at it, I'm quite happy to just not think much about Seasons 1 and 2 existing. Cool. And, and <laughs> Let's I mean, talk about is, Season 3. But also, well, I mean, here's the thing. Like like I was saying about other things, about like getting too uh, hooked on certain things as a fan. or and, and also, another thing I try to think very strongly about all the time is remembering that when you have an opinion about something, it's not a fact. You know, there's somebody out there that's a huge fan of the thing that you hate, and then there's somebody out there that really hates the thing that you love but neither one of you are necessarily right objectively, and you just got to leave things open for everybody to like what they like. I enjoyed watching most of Picard season one. The end of Picard season one hit me at a time where certain things were happening in my life where I was not prepared to watch an entire last episode and watch Data die again and and deal with mortality in a way that I just wasn't ready for. I'm not sure I'll ever revisit that season again for that reason, because it's part of a time for me, but I didn't think it was terrible, but I honestly did think it wasn't that great. I I thought there were things about it that felt like it wasn't, it wasn't quite connecting with the universe. It was claiming to be a sequel to See, so like, for example, Mm -hmm all the stuff about Data's daughter in the first one, never one mentioned that he had a daughter before. It's like, right. do you remember the part where he built a daughter on the ship without telling anybody first? Da- I mean, wouldn't that maybe come up, but no. So, I mean, it, it was weird. Season two, I was encouraged, because I thought, wow, now it's Guinan, now it's Q, now we're doing time travel. I feel like they're starting to get the idea. Let's start moving more in that direction. It was really exciting at the beginning. And then about halfway through the season, we were still in Los Angeles in 2024, and really present day. I suddenly thought to myself, I remember actually watching an episode, which I didn't think was bad. I'm still entertained. But I suddenly thought, oh, my God, this was how they paid for the first episode of The Stargazer. We're just going to be on the streets of L.A. for the whole damn season, aren't we? (laughs) I thought, oh, no. All right. And then we got to the end of that, and I feel that a, 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 I don't know enough to know, so I'm not going to speak about it with authority, but I will say that I've read other people who've talked about how the way they dealt with mental illness and, and um, family-related depression to be strangely problematic and inaccurate, considering Patrick Stewart's own personal passions about certain things in his real life and the fact that this is a show made for 2022 or whatever. So, I mean, it's 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 the 24th century and they're they're locking a woman in a closet because she has issues like it's Victorian England or something. Why is Picard's entire life set in Victorian England? Why, why is his nexus dream to be in a Victorian Christmas forever? I've still never <laughs> quite figured that one out. So, so I feel like seasons 1 and 2 had elements but never stuck the landing. And were ultimately shaky and then season three came along and everything went right yeah and I told you guys this before we were recording because I had initially suggested this in the immediate wake of the end of Picard season three I looked up Terry Metallus and thought I've got to see more of what this guy does because he stick he stuck the landing and it's like something we've been talking about in fandom for years and years now, all these shows that never know how to end. And that's always one of the biggest problems. How do you end? And one of the, the crazy things, what was it, Akiva Goldsman, I think, mentioned on either season one or two of Picard was they asked him, I think they asked him about season one, I think, but I'm not sure, It might be wrong, where they asked him, so like, what'd you learn working on Picard? And he said, I learned that you should have the ending ready first, or you should really think your ending. ending. I'm thinking, you didn't think of the damn ending first? when you're writing your story that's wow. what you're telling your audience that and and the thing that i've often said is sorry to go all ranty and everything <laughs> the thing that i often said is when you start a show it's like you're entering into a social contract with your audience you're telling a group of people follow what i'm going to do from week to week i promise i'll tell you something that's entertaining and that will have a beginning middle and end and we all go okay we will watch your however many hours of story, and we'll stick with it every week. And if you genuinely start that project without knowing where it's ending, you're doing a disservice. Not only to that audience, but you're like immediately breaking that contract. It's the lost approach to, yeah. to storytelling. Well, I,
0: I assumed you were going to bring up, this is a, sh- a a show that I absolutely gobsmacked that we haven't discussed on this podcast oh really and it's fine to not discuss it now i will say that you know you talk about knowing what your ending is it doesn't just apply for shows if you're going to have say i don't know a recent star wars trilogy you should probably also have a conversation with people about where you want it to go yeah end of rant Exactly. (laughs) And when you
2: have, and when you bring on a genius storyteller who just blows open the universe, you don't then immediately make a movie to apologize to the worst elements of your fandom for that storytelling. Yeah. Which is why Last Jedi is my favorite ending to a movie series ever. It's a great way to conclude a series. I walk away from the end of that movie and now I never have to see Star Wars again. Last (laughs) Jedi wraps it all up beautifully. But anyway, um, I mean, it was an eight movie series. It was really there were some bad ones in there, but eight nails it. So, um, but like Ryan Johnson, who I also think is one of the, the true gifted, brilliant storytellers we have working today, Terry Metalis impressed me so much with Picard, and I discovered that he had done uh, a TV series version of Twelve Monkeys several years ago that ran for four seasons, and I thought this is fantastic because it's a whole show I never saw that I can watch from beginning to end. And I did. And I could tell you for certain from that, too. This is a man that knows how to structure a story and end it. And, and make you feel happy to have gone along on the trip. And that's what he delivered with Picard Season 3. It is just an absolutely beautifully structured story that makes you feel glad that you watched. And for Next Gen fans in particular, as he was saying, and he was right, this provided the send-off for this team that they never got. And it was just uh, it was a beautiful piece of work all around. So I think Picard as a show in general was a good idea. It, it lacked a little in execution the first two seasons, but in the third, everything gelled. And overall, it was certainly a worthy thing to do. And maybe you just needed to get Patrick Stewart involved the way he wanted. And let him work out the things that he needed to work out emotionally or other because obviously he initially felt, well, I don't want to do this and that, but then eventually he did.
1: And maybe that's just the way it had to be. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that about 12 monkeys. Cause I love that movie. And I was curious about the series, but now that I know that he did it and yeah. it, you, you thought it was really good. Well, here's the thing.
2: I'll tell you as a fan of the movie I've never been a fan of the movie, not because I dislike it, but because I have never really, I've, I think I saw bits of it, but I never really. So it is drastically different eventually. Uh, it takes elements of 12 Monkeys and La Jetée, the original you know, inspiration mm. for 12 Monkeys, but it very much crafts its own story. But if you like the idea and you like the, the idea of seeing a very well-structured uh, time travel adventure, that definitely will give you an ending. Uh, it's it's well worth your time. That's cool.
1: Um, not to be negative, but this third season of Picard, it just kept getting better and better and better through every episode, and I thought, okay, when's it gonna crash and burn? <laughs> Is it episode five? Nope, that was good. Six? Nope, that was good too. <laughs> and it it really it every yeah. single episode was great, and it built one built on top of the other. I felt like every character um used their strength as a character as part of the story. Yes. Also.
2: That's the, that's one of the amazing things. And and again, as he himself has pointed out too, Metalis is just part of a team. There's so many other writers involved. Uh Cindy Appel, I want to say Appel, but it might be Apple, but I think it's Appel. In fact he it's another thing I really uh love about this guy is that he gives credit to everybody when it's due. Like there's a there was a lot of talk when the finale aired about what would Picard's final line be? The kind of things you got to think about. And he does that line where he says to Riker something like, I've always felt that the stars are in my favor. And apparently they had a whole writer's room discussion about, you know, what's his last words going to be, possibly forever, you know? Because they already had, the sky's the limit. So what do we do now? And it was Cindy Appel who came up with the, the star has always been in my favor. And he said, that somebody asked him in an interview, like you know, he wrote a great final line for Picard. And so oh, I didn't write that. That was Cindy who wrote that line. So it's like, there's a whole team involved in crafting this, but they, I mean, this is like a, this is a season of a show that you should show people in classes about. This is how you structure a multi-episode story where you service an ensemble of characters and give everybody something meaningful to do. Everybody has at least a moment where what they are as a character is an essential part in moving the story forward. Yeah. And it's like, why can't everybody do this all the time? Well, obviously, it's not easy. But they, they really did a job there of, of making everybody shine.
0: And not just... I absolutely agree that everyone got a chance to showcase what they are good at as a character but I also feel like the actors got a chance to showcase what they were good at as actors. And there's even moments where, especially with uh, uh, several of, of the, the characters, stuff that they weren't allowed to get away with in the original series. I, yeah. th- I think Beverly Crusher gets comes away with this being a much better character than yeah. she was on the show. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just... took. I didn't really love seasons one and two, so I came into season three. I saw a teaser trailer, the teaser trailer, and again, I we, we put a spoiler tag at the very beginning of this. I'm just we we certainly need to, right? The teaser trailer that they showed at San Diego Comic Con had Moriarty in it. Yeah, that's right. all I needed. That <laughs> right. was it, and I thought this is either going to be pandering to the fans in such a way that is going to ruin the series and this will be the nail in the coffin or they're going to figure out a way because like in my impression I'm like is moriarty going to be the big bad of picard's yeah. final scene it seems like it that wouldn't make a lot like a sense but the way they utilized that character the way they used every character the way they went back and take Gingerly held up the history and brought it to the forefront in a way that someone who was slightly more than a casual fan could appreciate. Mm-hmm. My wife, who has never watched a single episode of Next Generation, is sitting here going, "I love this character. Who's this William Riker guy? <laughs> like, <laughs> he's amazing. Well, you know, so- he'd been in season, he'd been in season one, but like, you know, he talked about pizza mostly. There wasn't really much <laughs> to to discuss, right? He's like, yeah. she's like, this is." He's way better in this season. It's like, oh, I'm okay. I I get it. I get it now. It wasn't enough to get her to watch episodes of the original Next Gen. It was not. But in the same way, I think it did something that the other seasons did not. They tried to make two seasons that weren't. I'm going to put it in quotations. Hampered by the show's history. And in some ways, they just made kind of felt like a generic science fiction show, which almost wasted the potential of Picard. That's whereas, that's
2: what I felt. Yeah,
0: yeah. Where it's like you have all of this history, and you're trying to create something new. Granted, it's a noble attempt, but the show flourishes when it embraces what Star Trek is, yeah. because it the first two seasons didn't really feel like Star Trek except for when they did, and then that felt off-putting and odd and unbalanced. My opinion, of course, but I think yeah. a lot of people felt the same way. Yeah, um, guys, season three is a phenomenal. Like, I, yeah, I don't have to ever watch series one or series two. I keep on saying series. We're, we're having a Doctor Who discussion, and I, I, I am... <laughs>
2: yeah, it's hard to shake it's, that.
0: It's really tricky. Yeah, it is. But I will happily put on season three again at some point in time in the next two or three oh, years and rewatch it um oh, yeah and uh, also like you were saying about
2: getting getting into watching that or like your wife watching that um and i again i don't mean this to be disparaging to anyone that likes season one and two if you like it no, great of course like, not. like i said i also enjoyed bits and pieces of them i just felt that they didn't quite click for me in the end but I think that one of the real joys of season three is you don't need one and two to get into it if you don't want to. You can, right. you can definitely come to season three like you're watching a miniseries that stands on its own. Mm-hmm. And really, apart from like the brief appearance of Laris at the beginning... There's not a lot in season three that really depends on you know. I mean, granted, okay, I say that. You need to know that Picard is now an android <laughs> or, like a, or like an artificial being. Yeah, that's kind of a big plot point. But you know, they do a good job in season three, if you didn't see it, of explaining it. And even if you don't quite know the circumstances of why, they do cover it. So yeah, I would say yeah. that for the most part, you really don't need to know anything to go into it and and it does a great job of standing on its own
1: yeah i told uh, my best friend i was like look i know you haven't seen one and two but you really have to see three it's really good and the only thing you need to know is just one character from the other two seasons Rafi." <laughs> yeah and 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 that's it really because the whole android stuff like you said just comes up and it's explained away so, yeah they you know.
2: explain it and how about Seven being captain of the Enterprise now? That's like yeah. why are we not getting that show immediately?
0: That's what I want to know. Oh okay, I'm well, waiting for Well that. here's the thing though, but we are getting that show, aren't we? I sure hope so. I like, mean Like I feel like with the response fans gave to that program, yeah. It really does feel like even if we don't get and enterprise with with her specifically but will i feel like we'll see that again i I feel like we're gonna see jack again i do want to ask both of you this um do you feel like there was someone who got left out because i know the enterprise crew we get the main folks i mean we definitely got the main bridge crew but there are other characters who um i kept on thinking to myself this is horrible season three i'm like I bet we're going to get Wesley showing up at the end. I completely forgot that he showed up in series one. Like, yeah, we all, we all did. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I was like looking up going, did he contractually not want to do it? I looked up and he's like, Oh wait, right. You know, like uh, that aside, you know, I I don't know.
2: Three quick things to answer that. One is that, um, I used to have a very low opinion of, of, uh, will wheaton but i don't anymore i Mm -hmm. i uh not wesley i never had a problem with the wesley character especially but i because of his association with chris hardwick and a number of other things i've I've questioned some of will wheaton's judgment but after recently seeing a really in-depth interview about him and his past and realizing what he's been through and like why it shaped him as a person i have a much much higher opinion of him now and feel bad that i felt bad about him. I think he's been through a lot and he's amazingly well adjusted for having been through that. But I will also say that I don't think he quite has as huge acting chops. And I get the feeling that he'd probably be the first person to say that as well. And like his little cameo on Picard was cute, but also I never really felt like he was playing Wesley. He just kind of was standing there as Will Wheaton in that mm-hmm. scene. And it's okay. That's nice. But... I didn't miss him in this. I didn't think it was necessary. And the fact that Jack is now the son that Beverly is dealing with now, I mean, they mentioned Wesley, but it felt right to, let's focus on this relationship and these. The two things I would say that if I had anything at all to say about something missing or character, one is a minor point, very minor point, not a person appearing, but I'm kind of surprised that in a season in which virtually every single person enterprise bridge character resonates with the theme of family and parenting and it comes up through all of them even to data and lauren sung and you're seeing this resonating theme through all the characters of fathers and sons and and all that how could they not mention alexander what's happened to alexander why is Worf not reacting to anything about being a father in this series And that struck me as a little odd. And I also haven't seen Metallus or anybody say anything about that. Hmm. So I'm I'm a little curious as to why that wasn't there, even a throwaway line. But of all the characters, the only one I thought was going to show up that didn't was in the final episode when we find out that the transporters were a huge part of the conspiracy. I thought for sure that O'Brien was going to show up and be part of fixing the transporters to save everybody from being assimilated. And I was actually a little disappointed that he didn't turn up. I was very happy with the ending the way it was. I thought it was spectacular, but I almost felt like that was one person that could have been there. But like Metallus also has said, a lot of the choices in that final episode came down to money. They wanted Janeway in there, and they couldn't do it. There are a couple other things they wanted to do they couldn't do. So we're lucky we got what we got.
0: Sure. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I I definitely missed Miles. (laughs) Yeah, I think he could have been tinkering with the transporters. Now, I don't want to go off on a whole tangent. I feel, and I have done no research, and I I should have prepared for this, but I feel like there was a throwaway line about sacrifice— that Wharf says in regards to children, and I—that it, made me think—is there something that happened in DS Nine, a show I have not watched? I'm not familiar with.
2: Well, nothing, that, nothing definitive. I mean, yeah. I can tell you that for sure.
0: Yeah. So I, I was like, did something happen to Alexander? That I
1: maybe I. Oh, no. I think he was referring to. Uh, should I say it? I think he was referring to Odo.
2: Yeah, that's right. The line about oh, okay. sacrifice is about Odo. Um, yeah. Okay. The last we see Alexander in Deep Space Nine, he's grown up. He's serving on a Klingon ship. Uh, he okay. was involved in the Dominion War a little bit, but he was still alive as far as we knew and and doing okay. And it's odd because we don't know beyond that. There's a lot of stuff about Alexander's story through Deep Space Nine that I don't think was particularly good. But I, I do think it's I sh- it's it's odd that he isn't mentioned.
0: And the other thing, too, and I will say this as someone who doesn't know what the Dominion War is. I, you know, okay. I haven't gone to... Sorry. Nothing. No, no, no. no it's, they mention it on the show. It's clearly... Yeah. And everyone says, listen, the last couple of seasons, DS9 is amazing. It's the Dominion Wars, all of this stuff. Yes. I'm like, great, awesome, fantastic. I eventually will get around to doing it. But, you know, as this is someone who has watched, what, 40 seasons of Doctor Who. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's difficult to go back and watch seven seasons of a television program, Mm -hmm. especially an American television program that insists on putting what, 23 to 26 episodes per season. That's just (laughs) a lot of, of a time commitment. And in the last five or six years that I've been interested in watching DS9, something that I definitely do want to do, especially if I want to write for the next outside in, um, (laughs) I, I, what I really want is I want a definitive, maybe 20 episodes. Thirty episodes like must watches that you think that would you know like I'm well, sure it's the internet is probably can provide that for me, but oh, yeah. um that's that is a completely different conversation. Listeners, if you're listening to this and you have <laughs> your opinions, send them to us, please. Um there you go. All right. If we never see the next generation crew again, is this a suitable send off for them?
2: Absolutely a hundred percent. But I'd also like to see them again.
0: Um, okay, that was I mean, gonna be my next question.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, one thing that goes back to something else you were saying before is when we were talking about how they all got a chance to really shine in this season and you were saying they got to do things they never got to do in like Next Gen. There, was a, there were a lot of limitations to the way Next Gen was done that while it was a great show for its time and still a great show to revisit if you love it like I do, it had a more restricted acting style. There were things they couldn't really do emotionally that they can do now. And seeing all these characters like fully alive and emotional and human, even the ones that aren't human um, was beautiful. And uh, I'd love to see more of that because they all to a person prove that they are capable of delivering such wonderful moving performances. It'd be a shame if they didn't get some other opportunities. But if that amounts to like a guest starring thing for one or two of them here or there in the future and something, that's fine. But if we never see any of them again, this is a beautifully crafted farewell. It's,
0: it's their Star Trek six. It's a fantastic farewell. That's, yeah, that's a nice way of doing it. Now, I have other questions, but the fact that we have gone this long without mentioning Captain Shaw is criminal. Yes, <laughs> it um, is. I'm going Especially... to say this right now. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Team Shaw. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I can't imagine this series without him. I don't think it works without him. I no. think the the idea of someone pointing at the ludicrous nature of military officials behaving the, the way they do and just being kind of almost... I don't want to say an audience surrogate, but certainly I felt like he was speaking for me. I, I felt like Shaw <laughs> was speaking for me and I appreciated it so much. And there's a moment... Where he gets giddy meeting Geordi that I lost it. Because that is the smart thing to do. That is like is, you're like, he's not taking any guff from Picard. He doesn't care about Riker. And he meets Geordi and just becomes a schoolboy. And I'm like, this is this the best character that Star Trek has ever produced? I don't know. I haven't watched enough of it. But for me... It is a very high bar to set. I loved him immediately, and I think it says
2: something about the storytelling that it is so obviously teed up from the moment he tells us his Wolf 359 story. And in essence, even though I, I still think all the storytelling is brilliant, it is also a massive cliche in its own right. It still totally blindsided me when he got killed and and i think that's a tribute to the performance and everybody involved that i kind of didn't expect that to happen even though all the signs were there that that's Uh exactly what was going to happen and uh and by the way to the point about my discovering one of my new favorite shows i then found out that one of the reasons he's in this is because he's great friends with metallis and he was a key player throughout the entire run of 12 monkeys And so if you want to see more Captain Shaw being at his Captain Shaw best, you will see him as Deacon in 12 Monkeys. And he's pretty much the same character um, (laughs) with the same uh, mix of moral ambiguity and anti-heroic kind of approach to things. And he's a joy in that too. And uh, this Todd Stashwick, I, I just instantly loved everything he did. So yeah, he's... He was a joy. I'm I'm sorry they killed him off, but they say they already have a plan for if they move ahead. I'm guessing he would be the emergency command hologram for Enterprise
0: yeah. you know, G. So, yeah, oh, that would be such a brilliant move. Yeah, with with set like, and with him actually calling her seven. Anyway, yeah. Had to be Absolutely. mentioned because I was seeing like the end this this we're winding down this conversation because it's either gonna go on forever and we're gonna spoil everything or we have to we have to come down. Uh let me ask this for both of you. Do you think the other Star Trek franchises need, should have, and deserve this level of treatment? As and I'm saying specifically, season three of Picard, should we have a um deep space nine reunion should we have i mean as fans it's kind of hard to say no is is there a is there a show equal to next generation in in that level of reverence
2: not quite but i will say that since they're all of the same general era like This season of Picard also built very strongly on story elements that came from Deep Space Nine with the Changelings and the the fallout from the aforementioned Dominion War. Partially Voyager, too. And partly Voyager, too. And, of course, just Seven's very presence alone. In essence, what Metallus was showing here was that even though Next Gen was was front-facing, this was a tribute to that entire Rick Berman era of those shows set in the 24th century. And I do think that within the context of another an ongoing show, like we keep calling it Star Trek Legacy now online, but like in the context of an ongoing show that maybe would follow Seven and the Enterprise-G and some of the other characters they've introduced in this, I think there's a lot of potential room, in particular, to pick up threads from Deep Space Nine that would be well worth looking looking at, investigating. But whether they wind up doing that, I don't know. But uh, there's plenty of potential there, even if it's just about picking up a character thread here and there from some of those people who they didn't have the chance to do. And again, this is something they've said very candidly. If they get a chance to continue telling the story from this time period on, you can bet Deep Space Nine and Voyager characters will, will show up. You know, so... I think we just all need to, you know, while the writer strike is happening and while other strikes are probably imminent, maybe we also need to have a group that just sits in front of Paramount every day and tells them we won't let them out until they start work on Star Trek <laughs> Legacy and get that going for us. Speaking so.
0: of Paramount, Paramount Plus has uh, really leaned into the, you said it, the legacy of Star Trek. At one point in time, there were five Star Trek shows actively in rotation, not to mention the classic stuff in, in repeats. So my question for both of you is this. Do we take that same Paramount Plus formula now that we have, or will have, Doctor Who on Disney Plus? Does Doctor Who, A, deserve be i don't know have the the capacity to expand that universe in such a way that we could have five doctor who spin-off shows active at the same time and is rtd the person to get that ball rolling
2: i
1: can, well I he's can, kind of oh okay. sorry
2: no no go
1: ahead he's he's kind of already doing that i think he's already announced he's going to do some spin-offs but i i think Uh, in fact, with all the things that Paramount's done for Star Trek, it's entirely possible Disney Plus could do the same thing for Doctor Who. Um, We don't know what the spinoffs are going to be yet, but I would bet my next paycheck that one of them's going to be an animated spinoff like they've done with Star Wars. That's that's probably a given, I would think.
2: It's the simplest solution to doing older Doctors, too, that might still be around to do the voice, like Big Mm -hmm. Finish stuff, but it would be a difficult sell to do visually and the thing is they had davison and mccoy back in whitaker's last one which was really nice and you can get away with it and first of all i don't i've never believed the the garbage argument that like you can't have older doctors back looking old i mean time crash pretty much solved that already and i think everybody keeps forgetting that they made a point of saying that's why an older doctor would look old when he comes back, it's the time differential, whatever techno babble you wanna come up with. <laughs> but I do think that if you're gonna do an ongoing story or a little mini series, it would be easier if you did like an animated thing and like, cause also then you could have everybody, you could do like a whole little season of like Peter Davison and everybody just do big finish, but add the visual component, you know? Um, so, I mean, my answer to it is yes, it deserves it yes it has the capacity yes russell is probably the best suited right now to do it although i'm sure there are many other people that could and i think it's long overdue for doctor who to join the modern era of pop culture saturation (laughs) and give us everything and give us options if star trek can do that yes they could do a little run of Paul McGann stories. He could still pull it yes. off. So I want to see that. First and foremost, put him at the top of the list. Give him a miniseries. Give him, just give the man something. He did one TV movie. <laughs> just give him something. He still looks good. And uh, and I think also, like you were saying, uh, betting money. I would put money down that one of Russell's main things right now is probably Unit. I think they're, oh, yeah. I think they're setting up Kate and Unit to be a spinoff. But... Just do that. Do miniseries. Do like a two hour movie. Um, do something that Big Finish has done a lot and that other met, uh, media have done. Do a Dalek story with no doctor in it and do like the future of like, you know, Rebels against the Daleks thing. Do there's so many. you could do anything. And and with Disney money and support behind them, I can't imagine they're not already looking at like a long list. And is everything going to be great? No, of course not. But you know, the the fans will pick and choose. We'll we'll decide what we like and don't like, like we have with Star Trek. But I think the potential there of sixty years of a universe, there's an endless amount of characters and stories and things they can do. And why not? <laughs> why not give us a lot of it and see what we like
0: um arnold this has been a real pleasure having you on the program uh before we let you go is there anything you would like to plug
2: um, you can uh, check out more about ATB's books at atbpublishing.com. One of our titles that will be coming up relatively soon, besides The Outside In, uh, Doctor Who Revisiting, is a book called Counting Draculas by Vince Staden, which will be his personal journey through rewatching many, many, many incarnations of one of the most filmed characters in the literary canon. And he takes us on a really wild, uh, trip through all different incarnations of Dracula, and it's going to be a really fun book, and we will be opening pre-orders for that relatively soon. In fact, on f- this coming Friday, as we're recording, it's going to be World Dracula Day, uh, but, uh, we'll, we'll give people more information about that online, and, um, you can check out my podcast with my wife, Natalie, Ghouls in the House, which you can find on the ATB Publishing site, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts, And my one last plug would be I would really appreciate if people took the time to check out a little thing that I started doing over a year ago that has become a great source of joy that I never thought I would do anything like it. And, uh, it's been so much fun and I'm continuing it is a little comic strip called pickles and bean about a bird, a dog, and some of their other friends. And, uh, It is inspired by many of the kinds of things I grew up reading in comic strips and you can find it at picklesandbean.com and uh, I think that covers everything.
0: Well, thank you again for joining us.
2: It's been a pleasure. It's been so much fun chatting with both of you. Thanks very much for asking me.
0: And thank you again for joining us with Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout-out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. Who and Company can be found on iHeartRadio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany, support the show on patreon.com slash whoandcompany, or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month. Uh, It's good to see Oh, it's great to be seen. Hi. I have gone into battle with
3: lovers countless times. It can be therapeutic. I'm not going. That is a relief. I was practicing deceit. Breakups on my home world seldom end without bloodshed.